BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, yes, y'all, it is The Bill Press Show, live on a Friday, June 16th. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press all day long. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining the program. We are live on YouTube at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Always tweeting at BP Show. Check out the show on Facebook. Just look for the Bill Press Show on Facebook. And of course on Patreon, patreon.com slash BP Show. Holy cow, the uh just the avalanche of news continues to rain down upon us, ladies and gentlemen. Last night was the congressional baseball game here in Nats Park. We'll have an update as to who won and how that all played out coming up in just a couple of moments. Of course, we couldn't do the show without you. I mentioned we are on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Give us a holler there if you want to join in. Chime in. Give us your thoughts on the news of the day. And when I say news of the day, I mean we have so much stuff to talk about. Donald Trump is continuing his uh, sort of knee-jerk reaction to anything Obama. He is going to put back in put put back some of the restrictions on travel to Cuba, which we had made so much progress towards uh, loosening our uh, sanctions on Cuba. The health care bill continues to move forward through the Senate with no eyes on it, completely stealth mode and political hate speech. We uh, are finally having a real conversation about this, and we're going to have a real conversation about it and maybe point a couple of fingers here on the Bill Press Show. So stay tuned. we got a lot of great stuff coming up. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Friday morning. That's right. Last night was the congressional baseball game. What is it like? The 100th and something annual. It's been going on since the 1800s. Game. I think it, 1909 was the first. Oh my god, it's crazy how long this thing is. When people, when I tell people, it's like, yeah, no, it's it's reached its centennial. They tell me, these, did they, you see the, the crowd last night? It was, it was sold out. Twenty thousand tickets were sold last night for the congressional baseball game here in Washington D.C. Democrats versus Republicans. That equals. More than $1 million for area charities, so that's a very good thing. Good for folks for coming out last night. I was not there, Peter. You were not there either, as I understand it. No, I wasn't there. Yeah, we didn't make it out last night. It was a blowout, so 
if you were actually uh, wanting to pay attention to the game itself, you didn't miss much. 11 to 2, Democrats defeating the Republicans. And coming into this game, Democrats and Republicans were actually tied uh, as far as wins and losses oh, wow. over the years. In fact, there there are a couple of ties in in that column. Do as we well. know how uh, uh, Tim Ryan and Dan Kildee did, our buddies? They, I unfortunately from... do not have the box score in front of me, but Cyprian, I know, was at the Sip game. Sip was there. Sip, do you know how Tim or uh, Dan Kildee did? All right, Tim Ryan got a Tim ribby. Tim got an RBI, yeah. That's... Oh, no. Well... That's good for all him. Right. All right. Well, twenty five thousand people were there at that game last night. Twenty five thousand people. So good, that's insane. Good for the congressional baseball game and their charity. Some news out of Oregon this morning. Oregon has become the first state to recognize intersex, gender fluid, and agender people on IDs. So if you're getting your driver's license in oh, wow. Oregon anytime soon and you do not identify as just male or female, you now have a third option. It's called X. Uh, it was inspired by Portland resident Jamie Shoup, who became the first person to be legally recognized as neither male nor female uh, last year. So congratulations to Oregon. That's uh, a pretty progressive thing. Good, Good for, for them. Good for them. Time to catch up with the times. Man. And finally, uh, we know this past week we lost a hero from the television world, Adam West, who played Batman in the 1960s television series. Last night, L.A. Tr- uh, paid tribute to Adam West. The mayor had the bat signal glare across That's City cool. Hall's tower. So, uh, yeah, very cool. That's Adam cool. West died this this uh, this week at the age of 88. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. Here we are live on a Friday, June 16th. We have uh, a giant show on tap today. Boy, I got to tell you, we're going to, later on in this hour, we'll be talking to uh, Louisa Savage from Politico about female candidates. I know a lot of people were excited to see the first female president. Uh, in Hillary Clinton, and that didn't happen. So what is the future of female candidates? We're going to talk to Louisa Savage from Politico. In the next hour, our buddy Emma Roller will be in studio for the hour and the triumphant return of Arthur Delaney from HuffPost. So y'all stick around uh, for... Sorry, who? Uh, Yeah, I know, right? Arthur Delaney. Does that ring a bell at all? No. Arthur Delaney. Some people may call him Artie. Arthur Delaney. Art. I know a lot of people have been wondering, where's Arthur? Art Garfunkel. That, that <laughs> That's the one, the one and only. Mm-hmm. He'll be joining us here in the next hour. I have to point out, uh, if you've watched the Bill Press Show for some time, you know that uh, we are a very, very small team here. Uh, it's me, it's Jamie Benson, it's Cyprian Boulding, it's, of course, Bill Press, and it's Ray Rogers, who uh, used to screen your calls and is now one of our uh, assistant producers, does a lot of the video stuff, pretty much handles all the video stuff. I have to say, congratulations to Ray Rogers. Yesterday, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl. Congratulations to Ray, uh, and and uh, and welcome to Valentine. Little Valentine. All right, everybody's healthy, everybody's happy. I heard from Ray yesterday. Uh, just in time for Father's Day, by the way. So this is great news. We have one new member of the Bill Price Show team, little Valentine. 
And uh, my understanding is she has already registered to be uh, to vote Democrat, Democratic uh, in the next primary. So that's uh, huge news. Congratulations, Ray and her husband, Keith, and a little baby, Valentine. Uh, what a blessing. This is so exciting. I love babies. Like, I, I do. I, I love the whole thing. So I'm, I'm so excited. I can't wait to meet her. So if you've watched the show for a while and you know Ray, uh, congratulations to Ray. On to today's show. Uh, okay, so this this really bothers me because Donald Trump continues. We got a lot of stuff to talk about, but this is one that I just want to get into right off the bat because Donald Trump is continuing his sort of assault on all things Obama. Anything that Obama did is automatically bad in the eyes of Donald Trump, right? And so uh, the latest is Cuba. Donald Trump is going to give a speech today in Miami where he is going to announce that he's putting back some of the travel restrictions that we had on Cuba that Barack Obama had relaxed. And it's just one of those things where it's a total knee jerk, a total, well, I don't even understand the issue, but Obama liked it, therefore it must be bad. It's so stupid. It's so Stupid. I want to read directly from this Washington Post piece uh, from uh, Drew Harwell and Jonathan O'Connell. With shift on Cuba, Trump could undercut his company's hotel industry rivals. What? What? Donald Trump is making American policy decisions that will help line his own pockets? I'm gobsmacked. I can't believe what I'm reading. I'm going to read uh, just the first uh, couple paragraphs from this Washington Post story because it, 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 it just it hurts your head. By rolling back Obama-era policies that allowed more private business investments in Cuba, President Trump would be leveraging the power of his office to shift Washington's approach to the communist island. But as the owner of a real estate company with a big stake in hotels and resorts, Trump brings an added element to an issue that is unique to his presidency. The ability, through his official actions, to undermine a growth area for his industry rivals who have raced in recent years to establish a foothold in a lucrative new market. Now, when Barack Obama, as president, relaxed the uh, travel ban, see what I did there? The travel restrictions to Cuba. Uh, hotels, smart hotel companies were like, okay, let's get in there, let's make some money, let's build up a tourist economy that isn't really there for Cuba. Starwood Hotels uh, debuted a, a Cuban hotel managed by a, by a U.S. company in uh, 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 last year. So they've already broken ground. They're already building things there to accommodate American tourism in Cuba. And now Donald Trump is saying, "Oh yeah, well, uh we're going to we're going to shut that down. You can't do that anymore." I mean, it's so naked. It's so blatant. It's so gross. And it's also just kind of like indicative of Donald Trump because like he's the leader of the free world, he could be cashing in on so many in so many different ways. And this is a fairly small thing, right? Like this is not a huge money maker. It's not like some giant nefarious plan that you could do as president, right? Like he's obsessed with the little things, like a couple of extra hotel rooms or 
making sure that it's Trump water bottles that are in the White House or on Air Force One. Like, it's little things like that, you know? It could, I mean, a lot of people have benefited from uh, being president, financially benefited from being president. Donald Trump is just, he's such a bad businessman that this is, he thinks, the best way to do it. Anyway, it really drives me nuts because the other thing is there's not even some, I mean, even a lot of Republicans had gotten on board with the Cuban stuff. They had gotten, they had accepted the fact that the Cuban policy of restrictions just wasn't working. And we might as well open up the uh, market there so that we could get in and make a little money, help build up their economy. It's just insane. It's just stupid. But that, that goes without saying. Also, uh, if you were listening at the top of the hour, Jamie Benson brought us up to speed on the congressional baseball game, another win for the Democrats. It was, what, 11-2? Was it the final score? 11-2 is the final. Oh, man, that was brutal. That's a big win. And, look, a lot of people lined up, and uh, there was a, a prayer that was said for Steve Scalise, who is still um, in the hospital and had more surgery and is looking more optimistic than it was yesterday. It was looking pretty grim there for a little while, but uh, he seems to be improving, which is good news. But we've sort of parked here on this whole political hate speech, this whole political rhetoric. And I'm really kind of torn as to as to how to go about this, right? Because I don't want to be grotesque and pointing fingers here, but Every time I looked up at the news yesterday, and I read that New York Times piece, did you see this piece where they said, like, now Bernie Sanders supporters have to come to terms with the violence in their party? No, I don't think so. I think that was a sloppy, sloppy piece. And I think to paint the Democratic Party or paint a Bernie Sanders uh, as as a candidate or as a leader, as someone who's inspired this type of violence, is so irresponsible. I, I'll put it to you this way. Point to one Democrat, a single Democrat, that has said something or led their supporters into the direction of violence. Point to one. Like, I, I'm t- I looked... I, I I think I can't think of one. Can you, Jamie? Uh, Bernie Sanders supporters. A- any Democrat, any Democrat, any Democratic leader who has said or inspired any kind of violence. Oh no, the actual leader? No, no, no. Like I understand that there are some people that are. I mean, look, there are plenty of people who support Bernie Sanders who aren't great people. We've, we saw some of that during the election. To paint the entire coalition of them uh, as, you know, misogynistic Bernie bros, I think is stupid and irresponsible. To paint uh, this one man as following leaders from Bernie Sanders or following the cues of Bernie Sanders uh, to, to inspire violence, that is irresponsible and not true. I can't think of one... Democrat that said anything remotely violent about the other party. Bernie Sanders supporters on quite a crime spree. Oh, get out of here. Who is that? Jesse Waters. I'll tell you something about Jesse Waters. That guy. That guy's got a face perfect for slapping. Yeah, he's got a very punchable face. He's got a 
bitch face if I've ever seen one. Oh. Recently, if you look at this shooter today was a Bernie Sanders supporter. You had the Portland yes, stabber exactly. killed two people. Bernie Sanders. Oh, get out of here. That's a lie, by the way. That's a bald face lie. That's a Mike Cernovich uh, scoop. Oh, God. I want to vomit. Here's the thing. I, I can think of, like, I, 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 I'm racking my brain here trying to figure out if I can think of one Democratic leader that has asked for or inspired violence. Now, if I had to think about the Republicans, I can think of a couple just off the top of my head. Rand Paul, which we've talked to, everybody's talking about his tweet where he said the Second Amendment isn't here to shoot deer, it's here to shoot down a tyrannical government. Donald Trump saying that the Second Amendment people need to take care of Hillary Clinton or can take care of Hillary Clinton. Which even if you take that explanation as, well, maybe they can rally their lobby to use their political force to take her down, it's still a little sloppy. Joe Walsh famously tweeted about, if Trump loses, I'm grabbing my musket. What does that mean? You know, in just the last week, Louisiana Congressman Clay Higgins made a Facebook post. I guess he was upset about the shooting in London, maybe. I don't know. Uh, He was defending Christianity because they always feel like they need to defend Christianity. Uh, He said, quote, not a single radicalized Islamic suspect should be granted any measure of quarter. Their intended entry to the American homeland should be similarly denied. Every conceivable measure should be engaged to hunt them down. Hunt them, Hunt identify them, them, and kill them. Kill them all. For the okay. sake of all that is good and righteous, kill them all. Oh, yeah. Democrats really need to tone down that rhetoric. Congressman Clay Higgins from yeah. Louisiana. Uh, Jamie, uh, I'm going to guess he's a Republican. He's a Republican. What? what? But I thought the Democrats, with all their rhetoric, their hateful rhetoric, were inspiring attacks on politicians. Hey, get out of here. This is crazy. The point here is you can say and you can believe that Donald Trump is actively trying to undermine centuries of what we've built here in this country. Like by his own admittance, they want to see the government sort of crumble and and what we've built crumble. I mean, that's not hyperbole. That's, that's, that is what Steve Bannon believes in. And you could think that's very, very, very bad. You could also think it's it's not a good idea to go shoot politicians. It's sort of a quantum leap to say Donald Trump is an evil and bad person, and if one of your supporters goes and shoots somebody, that that is somehow inspired by that rhetoric. It's It's forcing a square peg into a round hole. We're not naive. We know this man does not represent all Bernie Sanders supporters. Oh. Was that-, yeah, that happened the other night. Was that? Uh, he also said that he's a quote-unquote fan of Bernie Sanders. That's oh Sean Hannity. God, I thought that was Sean Hannity. I want to play a couple of clips. Uh, I want to start first of all with Sarah Huckabee Sanders, um, where she talks about the rhetoric flying around. I think the president was extremely clear yesterday where he thought the rhetoric should lie. Uh, and certainly, I, 
I'm not sure how you would say that he should own responsibility in any of that. Um, I think that there's some responsibility there when you look at how the the uh, election escalated. I mean, it was it was on and on and on to the horrible things that Donald Trump said about Hillary Clinton and it, hell, members of his own party. I mean, just nastiness. He's hardly a positive guy giving out positive uh, um, messages. I mean, even yesterday, he was still tweeting about Hillary Clinton. I mean, good good grief. I think I can't get over it. Sarah Huckabee Sanders went on to say that we need to bring the temperature down. As a whole, uh, our country certainly could bring uh, the temperature down a little bit. I think that was the goal that the president laid out yesterday, and hopefully uh, we can all see moving forward. Okay, literally moments after she said that, Donald Trump tweeted, Crooked H! Crooked Hillary. In case you didn't catch that, the subtlety of his tweets. (laughs) Crooked H destroyed phones with hammer, bleached emails, and had husband meet with AG days before she was cleared. And they talk about obstruction? Like, literally moments after Sarah Huckabee Sanders talked about bringing the temperature down and to stop being, uh, throwing all these, all this nastiness around. He's back on that horse! I have a question. Has Melania's cyberbullying campaign started yet? Oh, uh, Jamie, I'm glad you asked. They said that that is dead in the water. Oh, really? They are not going to pursue that. She's moving to the White House because we keep talking. Everybody said once she and Barron move into the White House, the tweeting will slow down. Yeah. I, I have how'd not that, seen. How'd that happen? How'd that work? Pretty terribly. Talk about bringing the temperature down. Sweaty Teddy, Ted Nugent. Who I used to like. I was I, I used to, I mean, when I was a younger man, I liked to listen to his music. I was a guitar player. I liked, liked to play his music. But, like, the more you learn about him, he's clearly a deranged individual. But Sweaty Teddy, who's been in the White House with Donald Trump, shaking his hand at the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. With Kid Rock and with, Sarah Palin. With great Americans, Kid Rock. Sorry, excuse me. They were invited guests of Sarah Palin. That's right. That's right. Donald Trump had them in the White House shaking hands with these maniacs. Let's just remember who Ted Nugent is. 2012, he called Barack Obama a subhuman mongrel. He called him a piece of S. He fantasized about shooting Harry Reid at the National Rifle Association's annual meeting in 2015. He called for Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton to be, quote, tried for treason and hung he called hillary clinton quote a worthless bitch called for her to quote ride one of these guns into the sunset end quote and told barack obama quote suck on my machine gun end quote but ted nugent has had a change of heart jamie where was this interview WABC. 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 Where Ted Nugent has softened up a little bit. My wife has convinced me that I just can't use those harsh terms. I cannot and I will not 
and I encourage even my friends slash enemy on the left in the Democrat and liberal world that we have got to be civil to each other. Ted Nugent <laughs> can go F himself. He sounds like he was calling in from a bunker, by the way. He probably was. He probably was. That we have got to be civil to each other. Like, I I have no words. My, for those of you that are watching on Free Speech TV, uh, my brain has liquefied and is leaking out of my ears. Can somebody get me some duct tape or something that I can wrap around my head to keep it from exploding? That is the craziest. For years, he called for the death of our American president. Literally. Told him to suck on his machine gun. I want to shoot him in the head. But now he's seen the light. Nobody should take him seriously. Ever, 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 ever again. And if you think he's being sincere about this, buddy, you need to wise up. This is unbelievable. It, it, it really is unbelievable. And look, I, this is not to say that, like, I think we should have more hate speech and that we should have more nasty rhetoric. But I think that we have to call things for what they are. And in the shooting that we saw, I think that one of the biggest takeaways is I don't think anybody should have access to an AK-47 with that much ammo. Republican, Democrat, Green Party, whatever party you belong to, I don't think you should have access to weapons like that. And I'm going to make it a little political. If you look at who it was that has fought for years to make sure that that guy could get that gun, it's the Republican Party. And if you look at who has inspired this anger, just outright anger, it's the Republican Party. Even Jeff Flake, Republican from Arizona, had to note that the source of a lot of this comes from Donald Trump. We've got to lead by example, frankly. Uh, we, we've got to do the same, tone down the rhetoric in the language that we use. And I do hope the president will do the same. We saw a campaign where on all sides it was, frankly, pretty ugly. And uh, we've, we've got to change it. I hope the president will lead. I hope the president will lead. Yeah. So, I mean, this idea that both sides were as ugly as, the, as each other during the campaign is such a farce. It's such a farce. Pointing out, like, you know, inconvenient facts about Donald Trump and who he is and how he's done business and how he's treated people over the years is not necessarily, like, ugly campaigning. Calling somebody a worthless bitch, which is what Ted Nugent said about Hillary Clinton, and saying that he would like to see uh, Barack Obama suck on his machine gun. Yeah, that's a little nastier than anything I've heard from the Democrats. Anyway, we're on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Find us there and chime in with your comments, your hot takes of the day. Uh, if I could get into a little bit of shop talk, Jamie, you know 
there are a few things that I love more than Alex Jones yes, sir. of InfoWars. And look, this is a guy who also has inspired a lot of hate speech uh, and is not the nicest guy. Well, I was explaining this to my parents last night because I <clears throat> went to go see a movie. Uh, this weekend, by the way, is the AFI Docs Festival here in D.C. Oh, yeah, that's right. American Film Institute. Uh, of course, there's the AFI Silver Spring Theater up there in Maryland. Which is the best theater in the area. I'm going for the first time, believe it or I not. I can't believe you've never been. This weekend. You're going to love it. But they have um, a couple different locations set up for the, the festival, East Street Cinema and the Museum downtown, and then the AFI uh, in Maryland. But I went to go see a movie called Acorn and the Firestorm, oh, which man. is about the 2008-2009 scandal with Acorn, the community the, organizing. The, the mess that that was. Yeah, uh, and it was it was really interesting to look back because I, you guys, you know, you were on air with Bill at the time. I was still in college. Uh, I was not following it closely. But anyway, um, sort of talking about how right-wing uh, folks seized on this, and I was explaining to my parents who Alex Jones is and why <laughs> I... I know that he is a horrible person. Yes, who has uh, it said that Sandy Hook is a hook, hoax, uh, that nine eleven was an inside job, um, targets individuals uh, with with hate campaigns. But me and you are able to discern the fact that it's yes, it's a bunch of crap. It's kayfabe. It's it's all an act, conspiracy. Yeah. But millions of his followers. Yeah. are not able to discern they don't get that fact from fiction so it's a it's a weird tightrope with Alex Jones like I'm I'm amused by him yeah but I also realize like what a dangerous cat he is well but I, as I was telling my parents I, I say it is it's difficult to admit that I'm amused by him I know it does make me a little in the more same serious. sense that you know like we we would play clips from Trump during the campaign where he would riff on Ted Cruz yeah. or Marco Rubio yeah and we'd laugh. Yeah. And we'd say, he's got a pretty good alternate career as a stand-up comedian. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, for those of you that haven't been following this whole saga, Megyn Kelly, who just recently joined NBC, interviewed Alex Jones, and the interview is set to air this weekend. And there's been some sort of pushback about giving a guy like that such a big platform. Oh, really? Yeah, believe it or not. And so, Alex Jones did something I have never seen before. He scooped NBC News and released parts of the interview and parts of what he recorded while Megyn Kelly was interviewing him. It's like... It's pretty stunning that they were able to pull this off. And, and if you were really upset with NBC for doing this, this is their punishment. This is their punishment. This is beautiful as far as I'm concerned. So Alex Jones puts out this video clip of Megyn Kelly talking about how she's going to treat this Alex Jones interview that they're going to be putting on NBC. My goal is for your listeners and the left, you know, who will be watching some on NBC to say... Wow, that was really interesting. And then the next time I want to get somebody, they're going to say, look what you did to Alex Jones. It's not going to be some gotcha hit piece. I promise you that. That's her goal, is to make people look at what she did to Alex Jones, presumably soften his image, and say, oh, maybe he could do that for me. That is 
disgusting. You know, we want to make clear, we do, we were speculating before the show, we do think that this was edited. It sounds a little edited. To an extent. And I do kind of want to hear what NBC has to say about this and how they respond, because part of it does sound, I mean, look, we're dealing with Alex Jones here, who is a grade A huckster. So, like, apparently, take a grain of salt. Apparently, Cyprian has put Alex Jones on the green screen behind me, so that's he's terrifying. always watching. That's terrifying. Wait, you have, uh, Oh my God! He's like he's like lurking over your shoulder on the shot. Uh, YouTube.com slash the Bill Press Show and terrifying. on Free Speech TV. That is terrifying, actually. And then uh, one other clip uh, where Alex Jones sort of explains what uh, is going. On. That's the second clip here. Megan Kelly waltzed in here to Austin, Texas, and told me that she wasn't going to talk about Sandy Hook. She wasn't going to talk about Pizzagate. She wasn't going to talk about Shabani. She wasn't going to talk about Islamic terror attacks. That she wanted to do a softball profile of Alex Jones. And when she got here with her crew of intelligence operatives, she did the opposite of what she said. And so I was recording the whole time. Intelligence operatives. They're called producers. But still... First of all, we got to take a break. But the, the couple things about that. Number one, <laughs> number one, anybody who refers to themselves in the third person the way that Alex Jones does, uh, beware. All right? Beware. Second of all, the idea that they came in as intelligence operatives. Like, not everything is a Tom Clancy novel, Alex Jones. <laughs> they came in here. They clearly had an agenda. <laughs> I was told, I was told this was going to be a softball interview. And next thing I know, they took my very own words and quoted me directly. And that is not fair, folks. I was expecting, Alex Jones was expecting a softball interview. Uh, she asked me some questions I could not answer. In all honesty, I had just eaten a giant bowl of chili and could not remember the names of my own children. Folks, these intelligence operatives are everywhere. Intelligence operatives. Intelligence operatives. God help us. Let's take a break. Get that duct tape for me, would you? Or something. Good God. Louisa Savage, editorial director for Politico Events, joins us in studio in the next segment. Don't go anywhere. We're going to take a very, very quick break. Uh, what will it take for women to win political office. That's the conversation we're going to be having next. Stay tuned. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Go Press. You know, I always say that I'm a combination of Mike Wallace, Oprah Winfrey, and Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> I know Larry the Cable Guy. He's a good guy. I love him. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show, 37 minutes past the hour. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today on a Friday, June 16th. Thank you so very much for watching us on Free Speech TV at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Listening to us on your favorite progressive radio station. We're all over the place, man. 
We're nationwide. We're all over. Uh, one of the things we talk about a lot on this show is women in office. We saw an election where Democrats elected the first female candidate for a major party in an election with Hillary Clinton, uh, which did not turn out so well. But why did that not turn out so well? And how big of a problem is it to get women into office? We are asking Louisa Savage. She is editorial director for Politico Live. She's in studio now. Louisa, thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me. I have to say, uh, Politico.com, y'all did a very deep dive on this. And I think it's really, really important. Um, there were a lot of people who, I don't want to say that people were voting for Hillary Clinton just because she was a woman, but there were a lot of women who really saw a viable opportunity to have a female president in Hillary Clinton, only to watch that sort of crumble in spectacular fashion uh, in a way that they never saw coming. So the big quest- the big question that I kind of want to ask you about is where are we right now with female candidates in office? Well, this is what what was so striking about this election is we were all so focused on Hillary Clinton and whether there was sexism in the election and and so on and the the hopes of women and the glass ceiling. Um, But something else extraordinary happened in that election. And and I think it's worth talking about and thinking about uh, women stalled. They just stalled overall and they stalled on the Hill, on Capitol Hill, Women right now make up just slightly less than 20%, and that isn't going up um, of lawmakers. And across the country, in state houses and local elections, women make up less than one in four office holders. Wow. So that for me, the day after the election, it wasn't just saying, oh, well, Hillary lost, we're not going to have a woman president. It was looking around and saying, well, where are the women leaders going to come from uh, nationwide, and why aren't they there? And at Politico, we've for several years done this wonderful live events um, interview series um, called Women Rule, where we bring women in politics and policy who are leaders in their field. And we talk to them about, you know, how did you get to power? What does it take for women to get to power? And then what difference, if any, do you make when you're at that table? So we've been doing this for a couple of years with with support from uh, our sponsors, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation, which is devoted to women entrepreneurs. And we said, let's take this uh, series and, and turn it into some investigative journalism and really go after this question of what is it going to take to increase women's representation in office? Because clearly uh, people were so focused on Hillary Clinton, but there's a much yeah. bigger, bigger world out there. I, I will say, uh, you know, watching how everything played out with Hillary Clinton was, you know, pretty depressing to, just to see, like, what you can get away with. That was my biggest takeaway from the election, not just with Hillary but in like after the election, I say this as a white man, right? So like I know this isn't going to sh- come as a shock to most women, but like it's really not that hard to be incredibly sexist and get away with it on a national level, right? I mean that was a brutal, brutal campaign, and actually the most sort of striking moment for me was was the debate with Carly Fiorina. Yeah, <laughs> where yeah. he says, "Look at her face." Look at her face. Like that was that was a low point. But I have to say, um, the the picture, the thing that we were looking at was, um, why aren't there more women? And and we we had an investigative reporter just dive into the ocean of research and data and and interview candidates and and aspiring candidates and strategists. And what she found was. Despite the really negative um, tone of the campaign, 
a lot of the, th the theories we had about why women aren't um, being elected, such as media coverage, fundraising, whether or not voters will vote for them, those actually were not the big reasons for the underrepresentation. There are all these hypotheses, but those are not borne out by the evidence. What turned out to be at the root of it was that women aren't running. When they run, they're just as likely in a given election to, let's not talk about Hillary, but in other elections, sure, sure. To, to win as men are. But there are just so many fewer women running. And so the next thing we wanted to know was with all these um, women across the country marching after the election, right, this, this groundswell of women, would that translate into an uptick in women candidates? And so what we did is we partnered with American University and Loyola Marymount University on a big in-depth national poll to see um, what was going on with women's political engagement and their interest in running for office. And what we found was really interesting. Um, women are so much more politically engaged since the last election, right? They're oh, many sure, more yeah. times likely to say they've called their congressman, they've signed a petition, they've, you know, they're following politics, they're, they're talking about it. Um, but the gap in terms of their interest in running for office it hasn't really changed. And it's a 15-point gender gap between men and women. And wow. this is really at the root of why we don't have more women in office is because more women aren't running. And so our investigation tried to look into what are the points along the pipeline where we're losing women. And the, the research that we found, the data was absolutely fascinating. And we tried to put it together in an infographic on, on Politico.com so people can really see the key takeaways. And one of the striking things, and I hope all your listeners um, who have kids think about this, it starts in childhood. And there's a big gap between the way parents talk to their daughters oh. and their sons about running for office. And that, to me as a parent, was just mind-boggling. Amen. Amen. I'm the father to two uh, boys, right? And one of them is about to turn into a teenager, which is horrifying. But, like, we're very, very, very specific about, like, how we talk to them about women, how we talk to them about, you know, equality and things like that. Because times have changed. And I think that's an important thing you have to talk to your kids about, especially for young boys, right? Because. Well, yeah. And we, we found, um, and this is great research out there by Jennifer Lawless at American University, um, you know, 40% of parents have talked to their boys about running for office, said you could be president one day, you could be a, 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 you know, a politician. Um, the number for girls is only 29%. Wow. And that's where it starts. And then it continues. The next big point where the data shows a big gap is in college, um, where um, women are, are more likely to be involved in activism, yeah. but men are more likely to think about office or running for student government. And then it continues into their careers where recruiters um, are more likely to political recruiters approach men rather than women about running for office. And, and the numbers we found were quite striking. That's fascinating to me, actually. It makes so much sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's I it, mean, it's it's messed up. But like I, it, we, we've all seen that play out. And it reflects certain stereotypes in it, and yeah. including women's own stereotypes, their own myths about themselves that they can't be elected at the same rate as men. But we did find a couple solutions. And so obviously, number one would be talking to girls about um, office, about politics, about um, political activism. The next one would be um, really talking to freshmen in college Um just putting this on their radar, that it's something they could consider, that they could actually be successful at. And the third uh, that we found was there is one area in politics 
where there is a gender balance or close to gender balance, and that is school boards. There are something like 40-some percent of school boards are made up of women, and these are women who have run for office, they've won, they've served constituents, they've dealt with budgets, they've dealt with um, serving in public office. So that's a great training ground. It's a farm team. Um, but it's not serving as a springboard to higher office for men or for women. And right. it really could. So if you're an enterprising political operative and you're thinking, where can I find some women that could be potentially good candidates, um, you should be looking at school boards. That's a really underutilized uh, farm team for, for politics. That's really fascinating, actually. And I never really thought of it that way, but it makes so much sense. Um, I, I know that Politico is a bipartisan website. I want to ask you because uh, I'd say nonpartisan. Non, non, nonpartisan. Nonpartisan. <laughs> sorry, yeah. I meant to say nonpartisan. Uh, there, there is a story on here though. Why isn't the GOP electing more women? Um, I, I would argue that the GOP does have a problem with how they speak to and about women. I think it's telling that even after the election. Um, the the boogeyman or the boogie women on the left are Nancy Pelosi, Elizabeth Warren, right? Like these are the people that the Republicans are trying to paint as the face of the Democratic Party, which I don't know is the case or not. Yeah, well, but the, they're certainly going there. Well, this was a really interesting conversation, and I hope everyone reads it and listens to it because we've put it out as a podcast, and we have a Women Rule podcast um, run by our editor, who's a woman, Carrie Budoff Brown, and our president also, Poppy McDonald, is a woman. So we're a very woman uh, heavy operation at Politico right now. Um, I love women. I have all their well, good. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, and so this is a great podcast that Carrie does, and I guest hosted it for an episode uh, for this project along with Amanda Ripley, the journalist who who did the investigation. And we brought together three Republican women strategists, and we said to them, "We'd like to get your perspective on why it is that." On the Hill, about 30 percent of Democratic lawmakers are women. And for Republicans, that number is only about eight or nine percent right now. Wow. And I didn't want to assign someone to do a story that Republicans would say, oh, you're just going after us. You're you're the mainstream media. I wanted really just for the women in the party to speak in their own words and tell us their own stories um, so that Republican women could could listen and, and, and find this to be credible. And and what they said was really, really interesting. I mean, we talked to. Um, Marjorie Dannenfelser, who's the head of the Anthony um, Susan B. Anthony list, which is like it's like the pro-life version of, of Emily's list. And we talked to um, Lisa Hickey, um, who's a former um, senior operative for, for Republicans and, and Andrea Bozek, same thing. She, they worked both on Senate and House campaigns. And they said, number one, um, they saw a big structural difference between primaries uh, in the Republican and Democratic parties where Republicans um, are are more kind of open primaries where people come in and, and have this, this tough battle, um, whereas Democrats, they felt, were the DNC was more likely to say, hey, here's our preferred candidate and we want people to rally around her and we want other people to drop out. So they perceived that there was a structural difference. And they also talked a lot about um, Emily's list and, and how much money it has and can support women candidates. That doesn't exist to nearly the same extent on the right. Um, they do have the Susan B. Anthony list, but it's it's much less um, 
well-funded and it's it's actually bipartisan is focused on on pro-life candidates so there isn't the same infrastructure uh, they felt marjorie who i think deals with more socially conservative um, members of the republican party uh, felt that a lot of the women in the republican party isn't aren't at what she called it credentialed the same way as democrats they're they're you know stay-at-home moms or they're people who um, haven't you know, necessarily don't have law degrees or weren't business women, um, but but were very engaged in politics, whether as fundraisers as activists. Um, but they're not viewed the same way as as maybe a woman with a law degree or a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the other thing they talked a lot about, and they emphasize this isn't a Republican or Democratic issue. But when you're talking about federal politics, not local and and, and state, where there's still a long way to go, but federal politics in particular, running for Congress, um, the first question they get from women, well, two, one is, do you really think I'm qualified? Which is the big difference between talking to a man and a woman about running for office. Sure. The women question their own qualifications much more. They told us. Um, but the second big question is, well, what's what's the travel? What's the logistics? How am I going to see my kids? Um, and and when you're running for for federal office, you know you're not really allowed to bring your family to Washington politically, right? They have to stay back in your yeah. district, and you're commuting. And if your state is far away from D.C., that's not very attractive if if you have kids. Um, so that has been a big stumbling block for a lot of women con- considering running for Congress. And so they talked a little bit about, you know, would it be possible to change the congressional schedule to compress the week or to change the cultural norm that uh, members of Congress can't bring their families to D.C. and have to commute? I mean, those feel like what, very what? long shot ideas, yeah, but it yeah, might yeah. be what it takes. But why is that? Why why is it that, that families can't come along? Well, because then people in your district are like, well, you've gone Washington. You're not here in touch with the people. Yeah, sure. And what they said is, you know, a lot of people, men and women, would love to change that, but they would all have to agree to do it at once and not attack each other for doing it. So it just seems... So that'll never happen. Right, exactly. So, so that's dead in the water. So that, that's hard. But the idea of can you compress, um, you know, a legislative session or compress a week to give people more time to commute? I mean, what's really interesting on the Hill is you're now seeing more... Uh, male lawmakers who are fathers express the same concern. I think you remember Paul Ryan talked about it as well when he became speaker that that his you know family time is really important to him. So I think as we kind of move to more equal roles in 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 parenting, this is going to be a, an issue for everybody. But so they didn't have you know quick solutions to getting more women into um, Republican office, and it's really important because we'll never get to parity on the Hill unless mm. m- more women rise up in the Republican ranks. But they did feel that it was something that Republicans are paying a lot more attention to, and they're trying to um, elevate the voices of women within their party more than they had been in the past, using them as surrogates, getting them on television, and just showing that there are women in the Republican Party and that they do have a voice. And, and that's a long process. And the, the other thing they pointed out is, like, look, for, for Democratic women, it started with um, the abortion rights debate. And, I, I was going to say, yeah. like, that, that's nice and well and good yeah. that they're putting female faces yeah. to the Republican Party, but at the same time, so many of their policies are frankly hurtful to women. So like that is a bigger problem that I think they need to confront too. Well, I I think, you know, they have their own views on that. There are a lot of Republican women and there are a lot of women who run for office because they are pro-life. So, you know, I'm not taking a view on on which women should win, but but the fact that we should have a a greater uh, representation of women for, for a lot of reasons. But I would also just say that, one thing that our investigation um, came out with was, you know, the sales pitch to women for running for office. 
there's a different sales pitch that works on women than mm. on men, which I thought was fascinating. And, and this comes out of research um, in computer science, actually, because um, the tech world has been trying to figure out how do we make STEM majors more attractive to young women? And what they found was as long as women see this as like a solitary pursuit that you're sitting in, you know, your room and and writing code, they're not really interested in it. But as soon as universities connect it to the idea of helping the world, transforming the world, solving problems, and they invent majors around, you know, computer science and um, humanitarian um, engineering, things like that, Mm -hmm. suddenly the the women who are interested really rises. So the idea is like, could you do that with politics when you're approaching women Men are more likely to be interested, the research shows, in politics as the fulfillment of a lifelong dream, as something that, that's about the power and the prestige and, and the role. Whereas for women, they get involved more when there's a specific problem that they think they can solve. And so that was a really mm. interesting takeaway. And we sent a, a, a video documentarian, Rena Flores, to, to Iowa to interview women who are training to become candidates for the first time. And she got some really great video interviews there. And and one thing that she found was there were women who worked on issues for years and they supported other candidates for years and that never occurred to them to run as a candidate. And finally, they said, you know what, I could do this. I could help solve these problems that I've been advocating for. And what was so striking about it was was that there was a big Donald Trump effect. And it and it wasn't part of it was, yes, they were angry about Donald Trump. They couldn't believe it. They they just were they wanted to get involved. But there were also Republican women there who said, you know, I'm just as qualified as Donald Trump. He's an unconventional candidate, so sure. maybe I can do this. Sure. And that was really empowering for a lot of women on both sides of the aisle. We have about three minutes left. Uh, everybody go to politico.com to check it out. The last thing I want to get into you, uh, get into with, with you, um, the difference between here in America and the rest of the world. Because we've seen a lot of female leaders um, around the world, and we haven't had a female president, obviously. How are other countries sort of addressing this, and are they ahead of us or behind us, or how is that shaping up? Well, it's really interesting. Um, the U.S. has actually moved down in the rankings of women's representation as other countries elect more women, um, and, and, and and we kind of slide down the, the ranks. Um, you know, different countries obviously have different political systems. One that we looked at a, with a little bit more closely in this project was Canada, uh, because as you know, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a campaign promise to have a gender balanced cabinet. Um, I happen to be Canadian, so this was interesting to me. Yeah, right. um, so uh, we interviewed uh, David McNaughton, who's the uh, Canadian ambassador here in Washington, and he was involved as a campaign strategist for Trudeau. And we said, how did you get to a 50-50 cabinet? Because the interesting thing um, in that parliamentary system is you can't just appoint women to your cabinet. They first have to be elected. They have to be sitting members of parliament before they can join the cabinet. Um, And so McNaughton talked about how he sent out letters and they just said, do you know this woman? And they listed various characteristics of the kinds of women they were looking for across communities. And then they started a social media campaign um, calling on people to ask ask women to run. And they got lots of names and nominations from communities from backgrounds that he said you wouldn't normally associate with uh, members of parliament. They had a woman who ran a homeless shelter in one community. They had a nurse in another community, a doctor. Um, and they built teams out around these women. They supported them. 
and they helped them get elected. And frankly, they had a wave election. I mean, their numbers just were, were historic um, in, in that election. So they were able to get a lot of their candidates in. And then the prime minister made good on his promise to uh, appoint a 50-50 cabinet. He has a lot of really young women in some of these positions. And they're getting some backlash right now. There are people who are questioning, you know, is this the most uh, meritocratic cabinet? Are there people with more experience who should be in? So it hasn't all been smooth sailing, but it's certainly made a big statement on the world stage and, and certainly changed the optics and what our you know expectations are about what political leadership looks like. That to me, I think was so important. I think the optics of saying, I'm going to have a cabinet that is made up of equal parts men and women, that sends a very pa- powerful message to uh, not only the rest of the world, right, but also to people in your own country, women in your own country, young women in your own country, like what we talked about earlier about how we talk to women about running for office. We will have a seat at the table, right? Absolutely. And I think that's really important. Uh, go to Politico.com. Politico.com. Our guest has been Louisa Savage, editorial director for Politico Live. A really, really great deep dive into women running for office. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. All right, we'll uh, be right back. A very, very quick break. And we'll be joined by our friend Emma Roller from Fusion. Stay tuned. Be right back. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is the Bill Press Show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to a Friday, June 16th. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Bill is out, but we'll be back uh, next week, of course. So he's left the show in my somewhat capable hands. Uh, I am joined for the rest of the hour by my friend Emma Roller. Fusion. Hi, Emma. Hello, Peter. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Happy ha- Friday. Happy Friday. Uh, any big weekend plans? Mm, nope. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Because you were you're a, you're a Wisconsinite. Yes. And you were just in Wisconsin. Yes. What is the difference between ice cream and custard? Are you kidding me? Are I you just, really asking me this? A little bit. Yeah. I'm. I'm, I'm do I, you I not? Know. Do you actually not know? I mean, I've tasted the difference. I've eaten plenty of both. Okay, so the difference is that... It's higher in butterfat. Is that the thing? Like the custard? It's like... Custard has eggs in it. Ice cream has eggs, doesn't it? I don't think so. Really? Uh, I think I think ice cream has eggs in no. it. No. No, I think she's right. I think it's just milk. Ice cream's just like milk and... Dairy component. And ice and sugar, component. essentially, right? Hmm. Maybe I've been making ice cream wrong all these years. What is? Have you just, been making ice cream? Have you been making custard all these years? Maybe I've been making custard all these yeah, years. Yeah, maybe you've been making well, custard. Is by the way, I just want to say, just I'm not trying to just gain uh, points with Emma. Custard is far superior. Like a good custard is far superior. It to is. Ice cream. It really is. If you haven't had frozen custard, 
I pity you. I pity the fool. Well, gelato doesn't have eggs in it, right? Gelato does not have eggs in it. Hmm. Anyway. Does it have milk in it? I don't think so. Oh, boy. We need, like, a chart. Someone someone is going this... to absolutely roast us Uh-oh. on Twitter for not knowing. It's going to happen. This is the hard-hitting political coverage that listeners expect. I know. Normally, by the way, we do a full-court press at this time. We're not going to do one because I, am, I, I have to get this out here. I'm mm. so excited. If you've listened to the show for a long, long time, you you know Ray Rogers, who has answered the phones yes. when we were taking phone calls and now does all of our video stuff. Ray is a mother. Yes. She had her baby. She gave birth to a healthy baby girl yesterday, Valentine. So Valentine has joined the world. Happy uh, happy birthday yesterday for the baby. Happy Father's Day to Ray's uh, husband. Um Valentine Rogers, uh, all all healthy. Everybody's happy. Already registered as a Democrat. <laughs> I, re- I really regret bringing this up, but doesn't that mean that Valentine and Trump share a birthday? <gasps> oh, wait, really? Yesterday was Trump's birthday? I believe so. You know so. what? Wait, wait, Trump's birthday was the day before yesterday. Honestly. Are you sure? I think so. I think so. Okay, okay. Hang on. Jamie, I'm gonna, need a, uh, I'm gonna need a fact check on this, Jamie. I can tell you this. The baby was born yesterday at 12.32 a.m. Oh, so, so technically. Tra- Donald Trump's birthday was June 14th. That was two days ago. So the baby missed Donald Trump's birthday by 32 minutes. Really, really, really smart. That That's a smart baby. Smart baby. Already a sign of great intelligence to yes. avoid having the same birthday as Donald Trump. <laughs> Don't forget, on June 16th, June 14th is my birthday, but June 16th was the day I announced that I was running. I was going to point oh out, boy. today is the two-year anniversary of the announcement that he was running for president, mm. and our lives have never been the same. Mm. Anyway. He descended the golden escalator yeah. well, who into could history. Oh, my God. Can you believe it's been two years since that? I remember that like it was... No. Well, like it was two years ago. That was two ago. jobs ago for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most steady gig I've had. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> I feel like I've aged 10 years in the last two years. Yeah. Oh, God. Emma, did you know that we have a green screen now? Oh, my God. Are you going to put so it? It's behind Jamie. It's behind Jamie. So this little like... blue screen behind me. I don't know what Sip has up on it right now, but we put Alex Jones up there earlier because we were talking about him. Because nice. Alex Jones has a watchful eye over the mainstream media. It's true. It's true. We're obviously MSM. So if you have any ideas for what we should put on the green screen, please let us know. Tweet us. And tweet us. But Emma, also, if you have any ideas. Okay, I'll think about it. Great. Take a very, very quick break. We'll be right back. On your radio. On TV and online, this is The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in on a Friday, June 16th, all day long. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. I am joined for the rest of the hour by Emma Roller, senior reporter at Fusion. You can follow her on Twitter. And when I say you should follow her on Twitter, I mean you definitely should follow her on Twitter, at Emma Roller. (laughs) No, you're a very good follow Thank on Twitter. You. We have a lot of people in here. I'm not going to name any names that are really names. that are really bad at Twitter. But you have to be like, eh, follow them on Twitter. I said oh. I'm not going to name names. Oh my god! I said I'm not going to name names. Wow. I'm not, I'm not going to name names. Emma, 
fantastic at Twitter. Fantastic at Twitter. That's, I agree. But that's like saying you're, I don't know, the best student in a remedial course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of. But there, but like you know, it's good. You're good. What are you like? What are you? What are you? What are you doing over there? What are you? What is the chin stroke over there? I'm just. I'm a little offended. Why? I didn't say it was you. Mm. I said you didn't guests. Say it. I said guests. I said we have a lot of guests in here who are bad at Twitter. All right. I mean, you were also bad at Twitter. You, said- <laughs> you were also very bad at Twitter. But other guests we have in. Seriously though, you should follow Jamie at uh, J Benson DC. Right. Yeah. I have Jamie on mute. I have Jamie on mute. Still? I had to. What did I do? Wait, you, on Twitter you on muted Twitter, him? I muted Jamie. Why? <laughs> Jamie knows why. Jamie knows why. Oh, the Bill Simmons thing? He put Bill, he, Jamie is a big Bill Simmons fan. Oh. No, I'm not a big and, Bill Simmons fan. Excuse me? And Jamie will retweet Bill Simmons into my timeline, and I can't. You could that. just mute Bill Simmons. Yeah, I could. <laughs> or just mute Jamie. Exactly. <laughs> No, he I don't have. He just Jamie. wants to find a reason to mute. I don't have Jamie on mute anymore. I don't. But follow Jamie uh, on Twitter at jbensondc, uh, and and maybe if you uh, if if you send Jamie a note, we'll open up the mail sack uh, <laughs> because Jamie often gets fan mail. Been a while since we opened up the mail sack. From a very specific demographic that watches the show, <laughs> the Gaiman. Mm. They love Jamie. Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman. <laughs> the Neil Gaiman. <laughs> The Gaiman clan. The, yeah. They love Jamie. They love little Jamie. Hey, by the way, one. <laughs> oh, boy. One... Happy Pride, everyone. Yes. <laughs> one more quick plug. Uh, follow the, the podcast network, Disreproductive. We're uh, putting out the Bill Press Show podcast every morning. That's me doing that, by yeah. the way. Uh, and me typically behind the posts as well. We're at Jamie, huh? DP Podcasts. At DP Podcasts. Disreproductive is the podcast network. We have other Great programming no, in addition to the Bill Press Show. Really and truly, you should go follow that account. Because everything everything uh, that we do here on the show, we, we tweet out from the uh, from the account and also all the other great programming mm-hmm. that we do. Anyway, yep. let's get right into Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Let's get right into it. Emma, your latest piece doesn't pull any punches. Headline, America is violent. Breaking news? <laughs> Um, it's a, you, you really, I think, wrote a very, very, very great piece that centers around uh, the latest shooting uh, here in the Washington, D.C. area, Alexandria, Virginia, where mm-hmm. the Republican practice uh, was shot up by a gunman mm-hmm. on Wednesday morning. Um, talk to me a little bit about just the, the overreaching thing of America is violent. Yeah, it is, but like in what way? Yeah, so that, that headline, I kind of went with the Occam's razor approach where the <laughs> simplest headline is the best. But yeah, I mean, it, it it's not meant to discount what happened yesterday. Um, obviously, you know, a congressman being shot has not happened in five years, which yeah. is... I mean, still a relatively short amount of time. I was going to say, I mean, that doesn't really inspire a whole lot of confidence. For six years. Yeah. yeah. So basically in this piece, I, I listed all of the, you know, various horrors Americans have w- borne witness to over the past six years from starting with Gabby Gifford's shooting through, you know, Boston, Sandy Hook, the Isla Vista shootings, San Bernardino, and, you know, various incidents of police brutality against uh, black people, um, just kind of laying out that, yes, American 
society is is violent on a structural level. And it was in response to this tweet um, from Ezra Klein, which I didn't mean. By the to- way, when I when when I talk about people who are bad at Twitter. Ezra Klein is one of them. I mean, he got. I, I'm saying that. I know you're not. I, I'm going to. Ezra Klein is very bad at Twitter. I'm. Uh, I mean, he got rightfully kind of roasted for this tweet where he said, "I have the. I, I have the. the I want to quote the tweet because you use it sure. in your in your story." Uh, Ezra Klein says, "Quote: It's easy to forget what a blessing it is to live in a country where politics rarely leads to violence, and how fragile that blessing is." Right, and then he went on to try to explain that, um, but. You know, many people made the valid point of, you know, that's a pretty privileged stance yeah, to take. Absolutely. Uh, there has been systemic, you know. It's a quaint sentiment. Even aside from just the visceral news stories of, of mass shootings, there is the state perpetrates structural violence against marginalized communities in America. And I feel like that's a common sense thing to say. And yet it feels kind of sticky for someone to say it out loud. Um, yeah. But not to like act like I'm some truth sayer. But, um, you know, like Flint, we saw the involuntary manslaughter charges brought against the uh, public health director. Yeah, yeah, like five different officials. Right. Manslaughter charges. Which is insane. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy that 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 it reached that level. How that isn't a huge story in America. I mean, granted, we've got a lot of other crazy things going on that we didn't think we'd be talking about. But that is a gigantic story. Mm -hmm. I mean- Manslaughter charges against people who represent like, their constituents—it's—it's mm-hmm. it's wild. But yeah, I mean that idea that it took this for some people to think like, "Oh, this is too far. This is too far." Right. The the moment for me that I that really kind of grossed me out about all of this, and I know people are going to get mad, and that's fine. Um, it, you know, we had a clip of Rand Paul who was at the practice mm. saying that he was, I think behind a tree or in the dugout, but he, he was seeing, you know, the bullets hit the dirt and sort of ricochet and make that dust and like bullets flying all around him. You have that clip. So he goes down, but is moving and is crawling towards the outfield. Um, there was uh, two staff members on this other side of this 10 foot fence and I'm behind a tree now, right next to the uh, batting cage. And I'm seeing shots skipping off of the uh, warning track right around these two. It's harrowing. It's a terrifying account of what happened. And yet, how many children have seen that exact same thing play out in our schools Mm. over the last several years? And, like, it takes this Mm. for him to realize that we've got a problem. Mm. Whether or not he's going to do anything about it, I would, would well, hold it, your breath, but it seems like the Republican response to all this hasn't been, you know, a sort of a wake up call about, oh, maybe we shouldn't let, you know, everyone have unlimited access to semi automatic weapons. But actually, we had, you know, the argument is that Capitol Police officers were there and there was the good guy, the Wayne LaPierre argument. There's a good guy with there a was gun. A good guy with a gun. Yeah. And that good guy with a gun didn't stop a congressman from getting shot and and is still in serious condition. Um, You know, I I don't want to necessarily, it's not that I don't want to make it political because I'm here to make it political. It's kind of your job. That's what kind of what I do. Um, But like when you look at who it was to make sure that this guy could have a gun like this, it was Steve Scalise. It was Republicans who mm. fought to make sure that a 
uh, person like uh, I forget the shooter's name. It doesn't matter what the shooter's James name Hodgkinson, is. James Hodgkinson. Hodgkinson, yeah. yeah. Uh, make sure he could have a gun. Um, he, Steve Scalise was protected, and all the other Republicans were protected and saved mm-hmm. by uh, police that we pay for with tax dollars. Right, this government that's so bad and so. Um, you know, overreaching, right? Mm-hmm. That's what our tax dollars pay for. He was potentially saved by healthcare that they have fought very hard for us to not have mm-hmm. access to, right? Mm-hmm. They have the best healthcare system in America. They don't want us to have it either. Mm-hmm. So when you look at what exactly we're dealing with here, it's pretty gross, I think. Yeah, I get a little uh, skittish saying, you know, it, it feels a little bit like victim blaming to say sure. Steve Scalise brought this upon himself. But at the same time, I think it shows in American culture how everyone at some point is finds themselves both on the perpetrating end and the receiving end of, of this structural violence. And Steve Scalise has now found himself on the receiving end. Can I quote directly from your article, sure. your piece, sure. uh, which you can find at, uh, what is it, fusion.com? Fusion.kinja.com. Fusion. Oh, fusion.kinja, K-N-J-A.com. <laughs> yes. That's right. Uh, from your piece, quote, America is a bloody place and remains so even in an era of declining violent crime. Americans are 10 times more likely to be killed by gun violence than people in other developed countries. The shooting on Wednesday morning marked the 154th. 154th mass shooting this year alone. Jimmy, how many days do we have in this year? 365. No, no, no. How many have we gone? Oh, I don't know. Look, it's, on the, it's on the clock up there. It shows how many days we've got up there. The oh, 167. There 167. You go. 167. So almost one mass shooting per day. Right. <laughs> it wasn't a trick question. <laughs> Uh, never mind. But yeah, it's been less than we're less than halfway through. We're less than halfway through. One hundred fifty-four mass shootings this year alone, and the sixth incident this week, just hours after the Alexandria shooting, news broke of another shooting in a UPS facility in San Francisco, which left three people dead and two injured. So a more devastating uh, mass shooting in San Francisco, where more lives were taken, right? uh, Where people died, three people died, and. Well, it's hard not to be cynical. I mean, anyone who lived through. Sandy Hook um, and saw the sort of shrug response from Congress. I mean, aside from people like Chris Murphy, who really, you know, went to bat for for gun control, you know, the collective shrug is was pretty damning. If if, you know, 20 school children being gunned down in a classroom doesn't lead to more restrictions on gun access, what will? I don't think this will. No, this isn't going to be it. Yeah. Like the 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 takeaways that I've seen so far from this from Republicans are uh limit access to politicians even more. Mhm. Um and to somehow blame political rhetoric on the left. Mhm. Which is laughable. I I I think I mean, the the site the, the whole political rhetoric thing I would kind of want to get into it here. Well, right? like, if you want to talk about violent political rhetoric look at the president of our country yeah <laughs> i mean it's a it's a hackneyed point but no it's was... a valid point i'm sorry like yeah. name one name one democrat that has even insinuated violence against the other uh mm-hmm. the other party i mean who trump said i remember i think in october or something that you know 
if Hillary Clinton won the election, the Second Amendment people could take care of her. Take it. care of her. My Second Amendment people could take care of her. Which like, What is that supposed to mean? <laughs> it's Yeah, it's I mean, that's not exactly subtle. Mm-hmm. You look at Joe Walsh, a former congressman who's now a thought leader for the Republicans, who said that if Trump loses, it's time to grab your musket. Right. David Clark, the uh, Milwaukee County Sheriff, had a tweet that was like a really lo-fi, like shutterstock image of people holding up torches and pitchforks and saying, basically, if, if Trump lost the election, it would be pitchfork and torches time. Yeah. Like, the, the question you have to ask yourself at that point is, if that's what they really thought, right, like all these people who claim that they needed their guns to fight the oppressive government of Barack Obama mm-hmm. or Hillary Clinton, who exactly are you going to shoot? You're either going to have to shoot members of the military, police officers, or politicians. Mm-hmm. Like, why else do you have guns if that's their argument, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, but I, I honestly, I've I've looked... I'm I'm racking my brain. I can't think of one Democrat who has even come close to insinuating actual violence against Republicans. And we just named a couple off the top of our heads, Republicans that mm-hmm. have, have insinuated violence against Democrats. Well, uh, Rand Paul, you mentioned Rand Paul before. Uh, an older tweet of his surfaced yesterday in all of this. Um, and I don't know if it was taken out of context. I'm trying to, you know. Be generous. I like that you're giving Rand Paul the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> but he said something. Again, a guy who really deals in subtlety. He said something like, uh, I wish I had the tweet on hand, but it was like, you know, what do we have the Second Amendment for? It's not to take up arms against deer. deer. It's not to it, shoot deer. It's to take up arms against an oppressive government, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, so like, what's your takeaway from that mm-hmm. if you're following Rand Paul? Mm-hmm. Um, One other point I'd like to make before we pivot away. You can make all the points you want. um, Is that James Hodgkinson, you know, and I think we should note that he was a Bernie Sanders supporter. Bernie Sanders, I mean, not to like tie him to the Bernie Sanders movement at all. Bernie Sanders himself came out um, and vehemently, you know, just, you know, condemned this. But he also, I think more importantly, had a history of domestic abuse. Um, which is a f- real serious problem that we're just ignoring. Which is a, yeah, which is incredibly predictive yeah. of people who go on to, you know, commit murders and especially mass murders. Um, you know, we saw it with uh, Elliot Rogers, his manifesto. And my colleague at Fusion, Katie McDonough, made a really good point that, you know, we could easily cut down on mass shootings by simply disarming people who have been convicted of domestic violence. But there are loopholes in the law that allow them to keep their guns. Well, who won't close those loopholes, Emma? (laughs) Got to see both sides. Got to see both sides. I'll tell you who won't close those loopholes. It's guys like Steve Scalise. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I mean, I know that's an inconvenient thing to say. No, no, you're totally right. I I mean, I I just like this – well, this is what you buy into if your argument is for total unfettered, you know, right for all Americans to sure. bear arms. Is you are buying into a culture where you're more more likely to be shot. Oh, that's depressing. I mean, it's a reality. I mean, that's the trade-off that Republicans are making is that their freedom to carry a gun outweighs, you know, their fear of being shot, essentially. Yeah. 
are we ever going to see any kind of real uh, gun safety legislation? I, I mean, I am, oh, I am God. really, I don't see really the skeptical. It's hard not sorry, to be very it, cynical. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm sorry if Sandy Hook didn't do it, and I know that this is a feeling of a lot of people, and mm-hmm. I hate to be such a pessimist, but have we met? Uh, if that didn't but, do it, I don't know what's going to do it. But I do think that our politicians do tend to be so very out of touch that, you know, I always think back to Rob Portman changing his stance on gay marriage I was after, mention that actually. after yeah. his own son came out as gay. Hard to ignore it when it's right in your face. Right. And maybe this will be a wake up call for even though I, I highly doubt it. Yeah. It might be a wake up call. But like you said, I, I'm assuming it will just lead to more calls for more security, increased security for uh politicians that's probably all that's going to happen mm-hmm. here it's, that would be my guess mm-hmm. um if i can play just jamie a couple the two sarah huckabee sanders clips um the first one where she says that we need to tone down our rhetoric i think the president was extremely clear yesterday where he thought the rhetoric should lie uh and certainly i i'm not sure how you would say that he should own responsibility in any of that and then she goes on uh, to say that we need to bring the temperature down a little bit. As a whole, uh, our country certainly could bring uh, the temperature down a little bit. I think that was the goal that the president laid out yesterday. Oh, was And that? hopefully uh, we can all see moving forward. Okay. I just want to point out that literally moments after she made that statement, mm-hmm. moments afterwards, Donald Trump tweeted, Crooked H... <laughs> I love Crooked H. My, Crooked H. My favorite WWE wrestler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crooked H. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crooked H destroyed phones with a hammer, bleached emails, and had husband meet with AG days before she was cleared. And they talk about obstruction. That's that's not really bringing the temperature down. That's not really bringing the temperature down. By the way, he, he literally just tweeted. Um, the fake news media hates when I use what has turned out to be my very powerful social media. Over 100 million people. I can go around them. 100 million followers? He has. He doesn't have that many followers. I wonder if he's anyway. factoring in his Facebook people. <laughs> or maybe MySpace. Is he still on Friendster? <laughs> Nobody remembers Friendster. I'm too old. Zanga. Zanga. <laughs> Live journal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Live journal. Sorry. These are some deep cuts for my fellow older millennials. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I also love the the he like the weirdness in which he capitalizes things. Like the fake news media all capitalized. Well, that's why I think those tweets where he actually bothers to capitalize, I feel like those must be Dan Scavino, like his mm. former caddy who is now his social media director. <laughs> But it's all part of Peter. It's all part of his job: keeping the peace, lowering the temperature, keeping it cool. You know, bringing America together. That's what he's all about. Oh God, this is so frustrating. It's just like we live in a hellscape. Every day I wake up, and it's just like creeping death over my shoulder. We, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yes, memento that got, mori. That got real, but. There are also good things in the world, like Ray having her. Oh, daughter. Ray having a baby—that's that's actually. You very have very positive. two very great sons. Yeah, very knuckleheads. Today's the last day of school, by the way, for for Montgomery County. Oh my gosh! County. Yeah. Do you have plans? Summer plans? Zero plans. By the way, Camp Dad, huh? Camp Dad opens today because they got a half day today. So. What are the plans for Camp Dad 2017? They have 
because no, like last year they I actually had them signed up to do some summer camp stuff. This year, not one thing. Not one thing. Are you so nervous I'm about that? Figure, yeah, I think we're gonna. I think it's gonna end up like Fight Club. The kids are just gonna like. I'm gonna Especially come home. Magnus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna come home and they will have completely like taken each other. Good, good thing is uh, Sunday night you get a little uh, cool down. Uh, Megan Kelly's on NBC at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern. I don't know if you. Uh... I want to talk about this. Should we talk about the Alex Jones stuff? Yeah, yeah. So this, I actually find this remarkable because Megan Kelly uh, sat down with Alex Jones. Who I, I I hate to say that I love Alex Jones because he's a terrible terrible monster of a human, but I also just kind of am impressed at what he's been able to do. I, I sincerely think, and I'm entertained by him. I didn't used to think this, but I sincerely think he's like some sort of media savant. Yeah, I do too. I was literally just going to use that word savant. You, this is this is an, uh, an old. Uh, uh, I can't claim that I'm an older millennial. I'm just like an aging stoner dad at this point. <laughs> But, like, if anybody remembers Morton Downey Jr., he is Morton Downey Jr. He was Who is that? Morton Downey Jr. was, he had like a, do you know who Phil Donahue was? Yeah. All right. He had like a Donahue type show, but it was so much more over the top. Mm-hmm. He was just like a total manipulator. And he famously lied and said that he got jumped by a group of, um, of black men. And he gave this, interview where he was all bandaged and bruised and it turns out that what had actually happened was he had gotten some of his friends to beat the hell out of him so that he could say that he (laughs) was jumped by black men and so he was talking about like the scourge of the inner city crime wave but it was actually he just like had somebody do it so that he could say that happened so a real but like all kind of a uh, an act, which I do think Alex Jones kind of is, but he's very, very good at it. So Megyn Kelly sat down with Alex Jones. The interview was going to air this weekend. And Alex Jones, this is a complete disaster for NBC. He has tapes of what Megyn Kelly said to him. Here's the what he sort of revealed last night, how she positioned her interview with him. This is the first clip. My goal is for your listeners and the left, you know, who will be watching some on NBC to say, wow, that was really interesting. And then the next time I want to get somebody, they're going to say, look what you did to Alex Jones. It's not going to be some gotcha hit piece. I promise you that. So she's saying, basically, I can soften your image and show other, you know, white supremacists and bad people that, like, I can make you look pretty good. To play devil's devil's advocate for Megyn Kelly, which I... Never thought in a million years I would do. There is a process for reporters to, like, butter up your sources to get them to do interviews. That said, I haven't seen the interview yet, but does Alex Jones really need more of a national platform? No, is the answer. I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, so can we play that whole thing, uh, that whole clip, Jamie? You know, I always say that I'm a combination of Mike Wallace, Oprah Winfrey, and Larry the Cable Guy. (laughs) <laughs> I don't Larry the Cable Guy. He's a good guy. I love him. I don't Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> uh, Wait, can you do your Alex Jones? You'll ever watch Larry the Cable Guy? I love I don't Larry the Cable Guy. He's a good guy. <laughs> I love Larry the Cable you Guy. You should do this show one day just in Just as Alex as Jones. Alex An Jones. entire show just as Alex Jones. Yeah. Here's the <laughs> Folks, folks, here, folks, <clears throat> folks, folks, here's the problem. I got to get to the octave. I got to get to the fo- Folks, folks, here's the problem with Larry the Cable Guy. Larry the Cable Guy. He's playing a character. He's an actor. He used to be a stand-up comic, and now he's putting on an act. And frankly, folks, that's my routine. 
Hey, by the way, Arthur Delaney is coming up next. He's uh, is listening. He can't see you. And he goes, is that Alex Jones? And we said, no, it's Peter. Hello, Arthur, Arthur Delaney is going to be joining us from the uh, very liberal, very elite uh, HuffPost uh, in the next segment of the program. Um, I, 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 uh, I I hope that I can remember uh, Arthur's name when we get him on the when we get him on the uh, air. I just ate a giant bowl of chili, and I can't even remember the name of my own children. So I... <laughs> So I'm hoping that I can remember Arthur, Arthur's name and title when he comes in. Uh, we have so. <laughs> I do like to. I do. I do love Larry the Cable Guy. I, I'm coming a little too much in the Larry Cable Guy land. Anyway, that's great. Like I don't know what NBC News is going to do, but this is a nightmare for them. A total nightmare. Well, okay. Who is Andy Lack? I would think is the name of the N- NBC executive mm-hmm. who's kind of been leading this charge to hire, especially on MSNBC and NBC, to hire conservative pundits and bring them into mainstream media. Megyn Kelly, who replaced Tamron Hall. Uh, Tamron Hall quit after Megyn Kelly replaced her time slot uh, and who was the only, I think, black female lead on anchor on an NBC show. Um, Then there's also, oh, my God, there's. Who am I trying to keep track of? Well, Steve Kornacki had a show. He was re- on MSNBC. He was replaced by um, Nicole Wallace. Nicole Wallace. Of the, from the George W. Bush administration. Mm-hmm. Who I think she ran McCain's or worked on McCain's she campaign. She worked on McCain's campaign. Um, George Will was the other big hire, I'll big you, get for them. Can I tell you something? Mm-hmm. I know I know plenty of people that work at MSNBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody that I've talked to says that Andy Lack is a moron. Mm-hmm. By the way, you know how Fox News is dropping the fair and balanced uh, slogan? I got a new slogan for NBC. Real simple. Hey, at least we're not as bad as CNN. <laughs> there you go, NBC. By the way, we have just cemented the fact that I will not have a career on cable news <laughs> after this. Like, <laughs> Bill can never retire. <laughs> Basically. On that note, let's take a quick break. We're going to be back with uh, Arthur Delaney from Huffington Post. <laughs> Y'all stay tuned. It's Alex Jones filling in for Bill Press today. We'll be right back. This is a great time to be alive, ladies and gentlemen. This is an amazing time to be alive. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show, 35 minutes past the hour. This is the final segment of the program, so thank you for sticking with us. And uh, it's only good stuff from here on out. Make sure you're following the show at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Uh, we're on Patreon, too, by the way. Patreon.com slash BP Show. Bill puts his parting shot up there every day. A little commentary, unfiltered. He can say whatever he wants on there. You know, as great. as we were uh, taking a dump on the mainstream media yeah. uh, in the last segment, we should mention that there is actually a fantastic interview with a member of the mainstream media, Greta Van Susteren, on our Patreon page. We went to Greta's uh, studio, interviewed her in her studio, put it up on Patreon. You can only see it if you are a subscriber. $5 a month is all we're asking. You get content every day. We're putting stuff up there. Uh, so go check it out, patreon.com slash 
show. And Bill and Greta go way back, so there's some stories. They really they like, do? So yeah, 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 yeah. They so it's it, it, she talks about this. We we interviewed her originally right after Bill O'Reilly got fired from Fox News. She actually talks about that because they work together, uh, and they talk about sort of her career and how she got into the whole news business thing because she was a lawyer and. It's really, really interesting. It's spicy content. <laughs> I want that. Folks, that is a familiar voice. <laughs> if you've listened to the Bill Press Show or watched the Bill Press Show, that is Arthur Delaney, senior reporter for HuffPost, who is in studio with us. You could follow him on Twitter at Arthur Delaney HP. We still have Emma Roller in studio from Fusion, who is a friend of Bill, well, friend of Peter, friend of Bill for the hour. Uh, thank both of you for being here. I'm a big fan of both of your work. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Arthur, uh, I want to jump right into a story that we've told. We, there are a couple of stories we could follow up on. We've talked to you often about Flint. Yeah. Uh, we saw manslaughter charges brought against uh, five different officials in Flint, Michigan. Um, how did that come about and what's going to happen there? Well, I think the first thing to know about these charges is that they're kind of a big deal because when the Michigan Attorney General, Bill Schuette, launched his investigation into Flint a couple of years ago. People were like, oh, well, this guy's a Republican. He's just trying to make a name for himself. Surely he won't go after senior members of the uh, Rick Snyder government. But that's what has ultimately happened. And these aren't little charges. Manslaughter, you know, that's murder. Yeah. And it's a huge deal. Now, Flint is best known because this was lead poisoning, mm -hmm. which uh, was proven to have affected thousands of children. The manslaughter charges stem from Legionnaire's disease, which was related to the same water problems that caused the lead poisoning, but resulted in 12 people actually dying. Uh, this is a pneumonia-like illness that you can get from inhaling water vapor that is infected with the bacteria Legionella. It's amazing that that this has gone on so long and that nobody was really going to face the music until now. You know, I mean, the G governor, Rick Snyder, is still the governor. Oh, this is serious accountability. And people who were, you know, whistleblowers in the crisis like, wow, uh, we're actually a little sad that the uh, chief medical examiner is in this kind of trouble. This is someone who's been working to mitigate mm. the crisis and ensure that the health of the children of Flint. But this is what accountability Looks like I, you know we still have to see how it all shakes out. Is this enough? I think a lot of people would like to see this get to Rick Snyder. You know, the part of the Legionnaires charge is that they knew about the Legionnaires specifically that there was a huge spike in the Legionella bacteria. They warned Rick Snyder's office, but in that warning, they said, "Listen, this uh, junior person who's talking about this is mistaken. It's a seasonal variation." So that was a, a huge red flag. It, you know, arguably, what well, the governor says is that it didn't get to him. Yeah. That this uh, brush off was sent to a lower person, so he didn't know about it. But it's 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 worth the continued exploration. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things we've often talked about with you when we when we talk about this is that Flint is not the only city that's dealing with something like oh this. Oh my God! I I think the potentially the biggest tragedy of this is that it's going to go down in history as something that just affected uh, black people in a poverty-stricken city because there are like 10 million lead pipes across the U.S. and they're in every city. They're here in Washington, D.C. There was a worse lead poisoning crisis here that just got dismissed out of hand because you can't tell if you lost IQ points. 
because yeah. you drank leaded water when you were a child. Mm. Right. There's no way to prove that what happened was because of the water, except that through population level studies, they've deduced that that's what happens. So it's going on everywhere, and I've reported on how these other utilities and mayors and small towns where there's spiking lead in their water to say, oh, well, we're nothing like Flint. But but don't you think Flint has been an important like public inflection point to get people to kind of wake up and say this is a big problem? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just been striking to watch how other cities mm-hmm. have been able to say, well, that was just Flint. That's not mm-hmm. us. And mm-hmm. because water regulation is so complicated, they get away with it. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll see what happens when the EPA revises its lead regulations, which it's going to be doing in the next two years. To loosen them? I, that, yeah, that, that, I mean, that, that is kind of what's happening here. One of the things that is, is we didn't talk about enough, I don't think, during the election is if you look at the Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump argument, right? Like Donald Trump was very much in favor of and all of his actions since becoming president have shown that he wants to loosen regulations that would protect from something like this happening again. If Scott Pruitt said he wanted to tighten this regulation, but, you know, they're really influenced by utilities. Yeah. And everyone needs to know that the current policy of the U.S. government is to use lead pipes for drinking water. Any amount of lead in any city's water is explicitly sanctioned, like allowed by this regulation. And there is Jeez. nothing in it. I have no it. idea. Right. And there's nothing That's in terrifying. it. There's nothing in it that says you have to dig up these pipes, even when the lead levels spike in your water. So that's what needs to change. And it's just so confusing that they get away with watering it down, uh, not to use a pun, <laughs> but uh, I'll be keeping an eye on it. So check back with me. Uh, there's not a whole lot of attention to it, I think, because it is so, so confusing. Uh, another story that you have covered um, and we've talked to you about many times, food stamps. Oh, yes. This was uh, exclusive Delaney content that I created for HuffPost. (laughs) I did a a long story on uh, Sunday night, Monday morning about how, you know, you've heard of the failed war on poverty. Well, there was starvation in this country, and now there isn't. That seems like a step forward. You might call that a win. For the war on poverty. I, I don't say, know. I have to say, I saw this piece. The food stamp program is an overwhelming success. That might also be its downfall. And I was reading through it yesterday and was, was just kind of stunned. And you go all the way back to 1968 where CBS sort of infamously showed a, a baby die on national television when they were talking about the Hunger in America program. Yeah, a baby died of starvation on TV. Richard Nixon got fired up. He's like, we got to get these food stamps out there. Uh, I mean, in large part, this was because Robert Kennedy made a huge push for it. And lo and behold, giving food subsidies to poor people helped them eat food and not starve to death. But nobody thinks of food stamps that way. People think of it as uh, something that poor people are using to buy soda. Or steak. Or, or steak. Right, whatever. right, right. And Republicans are in charge of the government right now, have always wanted to slash food stamps, have a golden opportunity. And with the politics of hunger completely flipped, the original justification for the program not as politically powerful, I think people ought to really pay attention. This is something that could happen in the next two years, even this year through the budget process, potentially. I think this, I mean slashes to the safety net like this um i think it shows that republican messaging has been really successful that they have really convinced their base that you know food stamp programs like food stamps are being abused whereas democrats have been kind of 
MIA on it, you know, not really putting forth a forceful defense of, no, we need these programs. They are, you know, we need school lunch programs. We need these programs, especially in the summer when poor children don't have the safety net of school and obviously can't afford to go on vacations like middle class children can. Um, Democrats, I haven't seen make a very forceful case on any of that. Yeah, I think there are a few people who pay close attention to food stamps in Congress, but like if you, at a national level, right. they would prefer not to talk about this. It's like sort of why. A, I mean, I know you can't answer. I, that. Well, no, I think it's for the <laughs> uh, electoral strategy that focuses on middle class and upper middle class people, mm-hmm. uh, suburban voters. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like uncomfortable to say. Yeah, a lot of poor people get food stamps, forty-two million, and they would prefer uh, not to have to acknowledge and embrace that and uh you know you never hear a whole lot of arguments about how we need to give poor people money (laughs) right because that's what essentially we're talking about we have a moral obligation to feed poor children to to feed poor starving children i mean like uh, in your in your piece where you talk we go all the way back to 1968 it took something that shocking right for someone like richard nixon to admit that, like, oh, we have a problem. He had to see a baby die on national Well, Well, I think one reason to be concerned is that now we have, you know, a a huge obesity epidemic. You can't really dismiss it. And uh, what the food stamp program really does, in addition to alleviating hunger, which actually now feels like a remote problem, it keeps people from being dirt poor. But the idea that you would now argue that we need a program that just gives money to people is really politically difficult. I don't think it should be because poverty is terrible by itself. Mm-hmm. But it, I think that is more difficult for Democrats to argue. That said, I have interviewed a lot of people who lost food stamps due to recent policy changes that Democrats signed up for, and they were terrified and hungry and skipped meals or didn't eat for, say, an entire and, day. And then you see states like Arizona, I think, that uh, have implemented, I think, a one-year cap on receiving food stamps for and for families that's devastating oh yeah well when you talk about the other programs where states have a lot of flexibility which is what republicans want to give them for food stamps they have proven and republicans know this it's why they like giving states flexibility Mm -hmm. they have proven that they will just kick people off benefits and take the money for other budget purposes Mm -hmm. so that's the dynamic that could play out if republicans in congress do what they say they've always wanted to do okay so uh, as your headline suggests, uh, that because it's so successful, that might be its downfall. Um, what's the future of this? What's I mean, the future of this, this is where does it, this end? This is in Congress, mm. and it we'll just have to see if they they've talked a big game about what they want to do. But it it uh, it's like the health care debate: do they have the guts to do? what they actually say they want to do, which is to reduce spending, which actually means taking assistance from people. And they look a little squeamish about it from time to time, but nobody expected that really weird health care bill to get through the House, and then it did. Yeah. And now you know it appeared to be dead in the Senate, and now it doesn't. It's the same thing with any big spending cut for an important program, mm-hmm. whether it's health care or food stamps. So... It's a little uncertain right now. I would definitely watch closely. I think it's extremely busy. You know, I wanted to be cynical about it, but through interviewing members of Congress, people who are experts on the program, they're not cynical about it. They think this can really happen. 
Um, on the food stamp issue, your uh, story, the Amazon Prime food stamp discount. Oh, yeah. It's all about enriching Amazon. Well, this is another... What oh, is, my for, God. I, what I is the Amazon that. Prime food stamp discount? They I, I'm, Well, they announced that they would uh, give discounted Prime memberships to anyone on government assistance. This essentially means food stamps, because this is by far the biggest program under which someone would be eligible. And... You might think that's great, and a lot and a lot of Democrats and other people said, yeah, anything that helps is good. But it points to a, another funny thing about food stamps, which is that they are essentially managed by giant companies that make and sell food, because that's you know you use it at a store to redeem the benefits. So these companies have a lot of sway on policy. They they Amazon sees that someday you will be able to actually use food stamps online, so that's why they're doing this. Uh, it the, seems like a pretty naked PR stunt of like, oh, look at us, you know. It's a naked PR yeah, stunt plus positioning for potential future policy change. I mean, right now you can buy anything you want with food stamps. And there's a debate, you know, Republicans say maybe we ought to take a look at that and not allow people to buy soda. And Democrats say, no, that's paternalistic. Mm. Why would you do that? But then consider the almost predatory behavior of food companies. Yeah. And I think it's an extremely complicated issue, but but Amazon definitely going to make a buck. That's all pretty gross, man. I think it's pretty grotesque. Well, it's <laughs> I, I, it, I don't know how else you would do a nutrition program short of just actually giving people money. Right. Well, that's the thing that I think Democrats seem to struggle with is, you know, at the end of the day, you just have to agree to give people stuff. Yeah. And yeah. It's, like but, for for freak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why it's difficult. They're not uh, not ready to say that. Right. But, but like that's a language that Democrats had uh, they knew how to speak. They created that language, right? When you look back several generations, right? Like that's how Democrats used to be. We were we, I know this is sort of a tangent, but like we were trying to draw the comparison between like Jeremy Corbyn in England and Bernie Sanders here in mm -hmm. America. And the yeah. difference is like Jeremy Corbyn is a Far left wing politician, right? Yes. Like, in, by his own description, and Bernie Sanders is just like an old school Democrat. Take the, care of people. Yeah, take like right. there is nothing really all that radical about Bernie Sanders when you put it through the scope of history. The problem is we've had so many centrist Democrats mm -hmm. like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton over the years who have changed the language of what Democrats speak. Yeah. The parameters the, of yeah. what the left is exactly. are so different. And so now these Democrats are scared for whatever reason mm -hmm. of saying, like, we can help you by giving you a step up. Yeah, you will give you opportunity. They really share that with yeah. Paul Bo Ryan. Bootstrapping like, mentality. You, right. We're going to give opportunity. We're going to give education. And the implication being, well, you had your chance. You blew it. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Like it's it's ludicrous to me, and I think that Democrats, if they want to actually pick up these Trump voters, if we really want to focus in on economic, or just aid, more voters, or more voters, or more, more voters in general, people like, who didn't vote, widen the net, absolutely. But like these these voters that were scared into voting for Donald Trump, if you believe the whole economic anxiety argument, mm -hmm. which I I do to a degree, mm -hmm. but like that's partially because Democrats didn't offer a better alternative. You know, when you ask people. Should food stamp benefits be more generous? They all say yes. It's like seventy-five percent support for that it's, idea in yeah. polls. Yeah, so it's the you same can, as like. So uh, why not just go out there and own it? Uh, it's a good question. It's the same as Medicare for all, which is 
it's Everybody wants it. popular now. Yeah. Just go out there and own but it. Nancy Pelosi's out there saying, oh, no, we can't, we can't do that. Unapologetically own your issue uh, yeah. and go out there and sell it to your constituents, and you will never get unelected. Yeah, and I think the question, I, I think the reluctance reflects that they are really close to their donors. Yes. Who might, who are a little more corporate, maybe, a little more squeamish, and uh, are giving them the money that they need mm-hmm. in order to run campaigns. I, I talked about this before with Bill. Bill and I got, I mean, because he's friends with Diane Feinstein, oh, yeah. I think. Um, but Diane Feinstein had, you know, a town hall in San Francisco, and one of her constituents asked about single payer, and she said, basically, I'm not there yet. Keep in mind, California, the state Senate just passed a Medicare for all bill. So it's clear that the Democrats in California, and I would say, you know, the average citizen in California is well to the left of one of the two senators representing their state as a Democrat. And you could single payer. Why? It would save money. Mm-hmm. We've Full got stop. we've got the entire industries just uh, setting up camp and sucking money out mm-hmm. of the country. <laughs> With uh, the way our healthcare system is arranged, it's not efficient at all. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Thank you, Shep Smith. <laughs> Shep Smith weighing in there. Um, all right. So, can we switch gears a little bit? Because you've also written about. Uh... Thank you for discussing my content. Let <laughs> <laughs> me tell you what great content. Arthur, it was. I just wanted to say that your content is really good. The brand is strong today. Wow. Arthur, you are a top notch content creator. Yeah. At Arthur Delaney HP. Yeah, follow him on Twitter. Uh, James Comey versus Donald Trump versus the world. Wow, it's, it's such a uh, who do you trust? Yeah. <laughs> it's really not that old. The guy who's a birther who says vaccines cause autism. Yeah, the guy who has put out dozens of provable lies. Yeah, versus a guy who you might not like in James Comey. I know a lot of Democrats don't like James Comey, but has a pretty solid track record of being at least honest, if not, I mean, a little sloppy at times, but honest. Uh, where does this end? It could end with impeachment. I don't know. It seems like you would need a Democratic House for that. Yeah. Right. It, it's gonna. I think people should be prepared for it to drag on and on. And uh, in case anyone's hoping there's the, the silver bullet that will finally take down Trump's career. Yeah. Wow, maybe I shouldn't use that kind of imagery. Oh, no. oh what, thinking, hateful, what hateful I, I, rhetoric. Uh, I was thinking more werewolf. I know. Anyway, it's not, no you one. Guys, you guys know the difference. No one thing is going to stop the situation that we're in. Yeah. It's going to be a long process. Right. And there's still, I think, some magical thinking among yeah. more centrist Democrats um, saying, you know, if we just, if this, then this, the dominoes will fall and, you know, then we can install Hillary Clinton as president. Right. <laughs> Look, That's just not going to happen. I mean, buckle up. It's going to be a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And I know magical thinking is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Like, there are people who just, they look at Trump, they see the bad stuff he's doing, they know that a majority of the Amer- of America uh, doesn't like what he's doing, and they think that that alone is enough to end this. No, I mean, it, you could just, just get... Just wait for the next election, I think, is probably a little more reasonable. Uh, you could beat Donald Trump in an election. Yeah. But you can understand how that supposition could be hard for someone who's, you know, facing imminent, you know, food stamp cuts, deportation, 
politics directly affecting their lives. It's hard to say, just wait until 2020. Yeah. Oh, sure, I understand. Yeah. But I also think that you also should be rooted in some reality. Oh, here. sure. Yeah. yeah, of what's most, most likely to but happen. But you're right. Yeah. You are right. Like, I, I totally understand the frustration. Um, Donald Trump, one of his close friends has, has hinted that he would and is considering firing Robert Mueller. Um, which I think he would absolutely do. I don't know if That's he true. would. That's true. Thank you. Thank you for confirming it. He fired James Comey, so why wouldn't he fire? Why wouldn't he? Yeah, sure. There's no end to the stupid things that he will do, but the, but just also realize that none of these things could really sink him before the next election. Like it, it could drag on that long, even though it's such an omni shambles at all times. Omni shambles. That's a great word. That's, that's really good. There was they? that really strange. I think last night there was a really strange statement from the deputy <gasps> AG. Oh my god, Rod yeah. Rosenstein yeah, preemptively rebutting a story that we haven't seen. Yeah, we might. I'm, I'm pulling. I'm pulling up, it up really quickly. But. One theory was that Trump asked him to get out there and, and say de- denounce something else and he did the best Just he could preemptively denounce all negative stories here's right. a statement by deputy attorney general rod rosenstein on anonymous allegations deputy attorney rod general rod rosenstein today issued the following statement quote americans should exercise caution before accepting as true any stories attributed to anonymous officials particularly when they do not identify the country let alone the branch or agency of the government with which the alleged sources supposedly are affiliated Americans should be skeptical about anonymous allegations. The the Department of Justice has a long-established policy to neither confirm nor deny such allegations. Americans should exercise caution. Americans should be skeptical. Okay, so Americans, you know, look for the story. It's fun. That's it. It's uh, that is a troubling statement. I I I really do think so. Uh, Well, look, we're out of time. We're out of time. Arthur Delaney, follow him uh, at Arthur Delaney HP. Emma Roller, follow her on Twitter at Emma Roller. And uh, go get the podcast of the show, folks. It's on iTunes. Thanks for watching. This is the Bill Press Show.